You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Jacket Civetta, I will jacket. Sometimes we both perform an act of presenteeism in our conversation, eyes engaging while our minds swivel 270 degrees in the treetops, yours ironically on work, the vagaries thereof, closing the pay gap or not, and mine on some metaphor that flew into my head then perched in a dark corner, observable only by the sound of readjusted feathers. In the background your chat on hegemony, heteronormity and other terms that bounce off the flat dish of my face reaches the peak of its peak as I am hunting a vole hovering with intent above the forest floor when, in response to some hypersonic cue, I tune back into you and stare, yellow-lamped, shuffling eyelids like screen wipers, quite unaware what has been said. Slowly I drop porcelain bones, spit a mouthful of fur, take that old jacket from the back of my chair and redress. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series, my name is Colin Waters, and this week we are talking to the poet Vicky Husband. Before we go any further, a disclaimer, I was the editor on Vicky's debut collection, This Far Back, Everything Shimmers, which was published by Vagabond Voices. This isn't, however, nepotism. Vicky's book was very well received, so well in fact it was shortlisted for the Saltire Society's Poetry Book of the Year 2016. And I have to say the competition she was up against was very formidable, um, the other names in the shortlist included Kathleen Jamie, Don Patterson, John Glenday, Joe Morgan and more. And I think it's fair to say that Vicky more than holds her own with those guys, as you'll hear during the course of this podcast. One last thing before we start. Uh, we recorded the interview last year and for reasons that now escape me, there was quite a bit of noise in the background at points. Now, it's not distracting and you might not even notice it unless you're wearing headphones, but nevertheless, apologies. So, without much further ado... Here we are, it's a Monday morning, I'm joined by Vicky Husband. Vicky, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, let's talk about the new collection, This Far Back, Everything Shimmers. One of the things that struck me most when I was reading it uh, for the first time was the way in which many of the poems, they're about either science, uh, quantum physics, the sort of more interesting cutting edge of um, science as it is now, and domestic arrangements, or, or ordinary lives, you might say. And, really interestingly, the way they can both mingle and merge and inform each other. So you've got really uh, interesting poems like Gene's Theory of Everything and Miming the Universe. Where does your, your interest in science come from? I think it started when I was doing the MLIT at Glasgow University. It was Year of Astronomy, mm. and we had the Astronomer Royal come in and speak to us, and Pippa Goldschmidt, who's an astronomer, and a writer and we got set down that road and I it's something that I just couldn't leave alone I found that I just kept going back to it for my portfolio for the course I found a book by John Barrow which was a history of science in in pictures and it was fascinating there was a lot of astronomical pictures in there from the Hubble telescope and of how black holes work and things and I just got really fascinated by that and I think it's partly because I don't have a scientific background I never did physics at school so in a way it's it's about what I don't know and I think even even physicists apparently struggle to describe their theories 
because they're so inconceivable to us. So it leaves that gap where you can imagine and you can use metaphor. Um, I think also day to day in my job, I deal with very practical things of people's lives, people, things they're struggling to do, like go to the toilet or get in and out of their bed. And I find it was a really good backdrop or juxtaposition to look at these small minutiae of daily life and set that against the vastness of the universe and I like that juxtaposition. Mm. Uh, we should say you're an occupational therapist with the NHS. Yes. I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, I feel almost in a way that science now can function in a way that for poets and writers anyway like the Greek or Roman gods function for previous mm. generations mm. of, of poets. Yeah. It's kind of like a myth kitty, you know, it's yes. very, re- you know, when you talk about black holes or, or the way that you write about um, quantum physics, you've really found the sort of mythical resonant aspects of it and that's what makes the poems really interesting. <laughs> well, that's a great way to look at it. I like that. I hadn't thought of that before. I'm not sure what I can say about that. Say, for example, the, the theory of everything as yes. conceived by initially by Einstein, I think, was it? Um, this idea that you could explain everything in the universe and there'd be one formula that you could do it. Now, speaking as a non-scientist myself, that's really an attractive idea, that you could have one one sort of little piece of uh, letters and numbers together combined and it would, just, it would just explain everything. That's what everybody wants, isn't it? They want a theory of everything. They do, and that's where the gap is, because apparently that's the holy grail, but Einstein's theory of general relativity, as I understand it, which explains the universe on a very large scale, doesn't match up to the the quantum theories which describe the universe on a very small scale. So when you try and apply the quantum theories to the large universe, it doesn't work, apparently. So, so Jean's, my idea was that Jean found the theory and, and that it is about matching the... And that's where the domesticity and the minutiae of daily life is set against the wider wider universe because it's her theory where she tries to integrate them, I suppose. And I I guess why I was bringing the Greek and Roman gods into it is on the one hand, they're huge cosmos-spanning deities who represent war or love or all the many things that they did represent but on the other hand you know they turn up in your house and uh, they they eat your food or get angry with you and turn you into a flower or or something like that so I, I read that's I really find that an attractive feature of your poems the way in which um, Jean or like Mime in the Universe on the one hand you've got a game of charades if you read that poem it's about a game of charades but what the the main character as such is doing is trying to describe the shape of the universe. So that's a really interesting sort of clash between the sort of everyday and the almost inconceivable for, for people to capture in their minds. I suppose that poem is about how difficult it is to explain it, really, and even using words, but in that poem, obviously, she's trying to mime it without even words because that's how it feels, I think. Have you had any feedback from people with a scientific background who've, who've read the poems? Very early on, um, the extremely large telescope I had, criti- I took it to a critiquing class at Glasgow Uni because I was on the course at that point. And there was a guy in the course who had um, a physics background, I think, and he'd, he'd been interested in that area. And he he seemed to think it was a good description and it was plausible in what it was trying to say. He gave it the tick of approval. He did. 
shall we hear one of the poems? Which one do you fancy? Well, shall I start off with that one? Yeah. Which opens the book. And it's called Extremely Large Telescope because those are the type of names that telescopes have. I suppose it's about a more of a radio array of telescopes which these days are so powerful that they look further and further back in time. And this poem imagines that we're looking back at the point um, just after the Big Bang. Extremely large telescope. We listen at the door of the room. The universe has just made its grand entrance. The energetic reception flattens the walls, creates new dimensions. A jazz band is getting ready to play the next number, wiping spit from its mouthpiece. Expectation has its own gravitational pull. So this is a night, the first one already cooling, but the crowd still expanding, pushing out. Light plays the darling, rumouring through the crowd. We watch it shrink to hearsay, history's glint in glass eyes. The low note of a trumpet drifts down between the years, its wave and bounce barely stirring the bluesy smoke. This far back, everything shimmers. We must get here earlier next time, we say, as the universe milks faint applause. So, as we've established, uh, you don't have a formal scientific background, you've got a background in fine art. How does that feed into your approach? You've got a few poems that uh, are about art or artworks don't, in the new collection, don't yes. you? There's one about, inspired by Leonora Carrington, who was a surrealist, whose work I really like. Um, she was a writer as well. Yes, The Hearing Trumpet. I'm rereading The Hearing Trumpet, which I love. Um, I, like, I like books that mix genres, so I like books that talk about art and literature and science and all the connections. I mean, it's all about connections. It's all, it's all in there. So how did you go from, from fine art to being an occupational therapist, what was the, I guess the modish word would be journey that one goes on there? And how did poetry keep pace with it? Were you writing during that period? Um, not really. The way I went to it is basically because, unless you're very, very good or very, very confident, there's there's no jobs in fine art, or the, not for me. Um, and I wanted to be able to earn a living, I guess. So I had various jobs, ended up as a nursing assistant, but I wanted something a bit more practical, dealt with people's lives, working with them in their own homes, so I ended up with occupational therapy. Um, in certain areas of occupational therapy, more mental health, you you can use writing mm. as a therapy, and I did do that um, early on in my career when I worked in an older person's day centre. And I enjoyed that, but now I'm, um, I work in the community rehab team, and it's much more fast-paced and like preventing people going into hospital and, um, or working with people over a period of time with physical disabilities. Some of the poems have a health aspect or dimension to them. Although, as I learned, um, one of the poems reciting to the bees, I actually thought this was current um, <laughs> current practice. Current practice. Maybe you can explain what it is and why it isn't yet. Okay. Um, Citing to the bees is really... I, I heard a radio programme. Because I drive around to visit patients at work, I often listen to the radio, but I never hear a full programme because obviously I have to go and visit yeah. people. But what happens is I listen to snippets and sometimes I get inspired by those and I go off on my own trail of research. Um, it was a programme about training honeybees to be like sniffer dogs essentially 
um, to detect smells that could be explosives or they could be um, disease or cancers. And apparently a lot faster than dogs take a few months, honeybees just 24 hours. So um, I then looked into this and I'd see, I saw a designer, Susan Suarez, had designed these beautiful glass vessels that would enable bees to come in contact with human breath, so to enable them to detect smells on breath and that, that set off the poem and because I work in the NHS I imagined this in the future bring a practice in the NHS. I'm very disappointed this isn't happening already, <laughs> but maybe if you read the poem that'll make up for it. This is called Reciting to the Bees. At the NHS apiary I make a prophylactic appointment and I'm told a drowsy summer is their busy time. Once checked in, I leaf through wildlife magazines before being called into clinic, a sterile room with an illusion of trees on the facing wall. I'm asked to relax in a chair as a bowl of bees are placed over my head. Ventilated glass separates the swarm from my mouth, my breath given a chance to manifest before them. The bees' Pavlovian responses are put to the test, trained to detect a whiff of cancer corrupting a cell. Probiscuses dip the air, expecting sugar water reward if anything is amiss, humming while they work in the downdraft of my sighs. I recite Yeats as my face hovers in their glade, and the bees hang on my every word, hungry for the scent of malignancy. While we're on the subject of bees, um, if you look right through the collection, it's quite a, there's quite a menagerie in it. There's bees, uh, dogs, quite a few dogs. Uh, as a dog person, um, I'm, I'm very much in favour of that. You've got Picasso's dog in there as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got jellyfish, horses, seals, a zebra, zebra birds. Different birds. birds. Yeah. Um, you're an animal lover? I guess I am. It wasn't... This is one of the themes that I wasn't essentially aware of or it wasn't deliberate, but um, they just seem to creep into a lot of my poems. Um, I remember saying to a poet friend, I just can't stop writing about animals. I can't get rid of them. They just kind of trot in there. Um so I'm not sure, I guess, a lot of poets would use animals or birds because they use them to represent something or they use them as a metaphor or... I think because they're fascinating, they're endlessly fascinating. Yeah. We, but your animals, we, we, you use them quite often, they flag up, I think, the alien aspect of, of the landscape they're moving through. So what, what do the horses think, which is about mm -hmm. horses on in Glasgow on a Saturday night and how odd it must be to be a horse in that situation. It's the police horses yes. that are trying to keep um, order. Yes, yeah. And then also there's a um, community liaison at Torness, yes. which is about jellyfish. Yeah. Uh, the jellyfish themselves, there's, a, there's a, I think you described them as flash mobbing yes. <laughs> at one point. <laughs> but the, I think in a sense you're trying to sort of you have that human or recent human kind of behaviour, again, it sort of makes it all strange. It's interesting. You're not um, trying to make the strange familiar. I think you're trying to make the familiar strange, so you look at it again. I think, actually, now I'm thinking about it, that, I mean, those two, the jellyfish and the horses, are both based on real incidents. And I suppose it's about the human world coming in contact with the animal world 
the wild brushing up against the urban and and how those two interact and how it seems to both of us, I guess. Mm. Again, like the zebra, in, which is set in Edinburgh. Shall we talk about how you started writing poetry and how that led to you becoming part of the Clyde-built poetry scheme? Um, we'll move on to the scheme, the mentorship scheme in a second, but when did, when did you start writing poetry? I started, like most people, probably at school. I still have a book of one of the first poems I wrote, which was about a fish swimming through the water quite happily and then getting banged to death on on, on the um, jetty. But then there was many years where I didn't, I didn't really write as a teenager. I think I got into it more as a late teenager. I went back to it. I think when, although I always wrote maybe surrealist little stories and when I was at art college, actually I used some fine text. I cut up text and used them in different pieces and in fact, one of my final pieces um, used text from Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. It was about journeys. I started off being really interested in journeys. Um, I think I, I got more of the bug when, randomly, I saw the advert for the Royal Museums of Scotland when they were refurbishing quite a few years ago now, maybe. 15 years ago and there was a poetry competition and I wrote one for that that got accepted and it was on a billboard and I think that spurred me on but then I did my OT training so that kind of put things back a bit but um, when I when I moved back up to Scotland to Glasgow um, and I had more time I, I got into writing I actually started off doing short story class with Alan McMonagall at Glasgow University evening classes and that was very good and although it was it was about fiction I learned a hell of a lot there about editing and about politics with a small p and about voice and things that I think really I then carried into poetry. And then you were accepted on to the Clyde Bill Poetry Mentoring Scheme. Could you talk a little bit about what that actually is and then maybe who your mentor was as well? So that's a scheme um, set up by St Mungo's Mirabal and Jim Carruth in particular is his brainchild. St Mungo's is like a network of poets in Glasgow. Yes, that I'm a member of. It's a great dynamic network of poets. There's readings, but there's also other strands to it. And one of them is about developing new poets. So it's yearly. Anybody can reply. It's now in its 10th year, I think. Must be about five years ago. I was on it four or five years. You don't know who your mentor's going to be until, until you're on it. But I was lucky enough to have... Alexander Hutchison, Sandy Hutchison as my mentor. It was a great experience. He has a lot to to teach. Um, I mean, that's what he used to do in his in his work. But even just his chat, the the directions he sends you off in, and uh, reading his poetry. In fact, I probably learnt most by just listening to him because I'd go to a lot of his readings, listening to him reading his mm. poems. Actually, he's a wonderful poet and. We did a podcast with him a couple of years ago. Um, if people don't know, sadly he died. Um, it was earlier this year, wasn't it? It was last November. Last November. It seems seems yeah, quite recent. It does seem quite recent. Um, you wrote a poem remembering him uh, that's in the collection. Would you like to read it first now? Yep. It's called Eclipse. Um, it references the eclipse last year when. Um, the eclipse of the moon 
uh, coincided with a supermoon when the moon appears a lot larger and it turns red at the point of the eclipse. Eclipse. I observe it on an empty road, outshining an alignment of sodium suns that caramelise the small hours. Tonight is foxed by the supermoon sky. It casts me as a long hand over a dial of room. I climb a ladder of floorboards, strum spines on the bookshelf, shiver like a black flame in the grate, then gather with others in creases and craters. And when all that is left lit is a glimmering rim of coin, it flips like grief, turns tangible, a coppery sob on the tongue. We absorb mostly blue light, so what falls into our umbra, storms, tranquility, nectar, blazes. Before normal service is resumed, the moon cut and pasted in a screensaver sky. By morning it will be goose grey and leaving to winter elsewhere. You've just been travelling a bit recently, haven't you? You've been to Lahore for yes. a literary festival there. Um, what was that like? And why, why were you there? Why were you there? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was lucky enough to be part of a project run by Highlight Arts. It started a few years ago um, and initially two poets from Glasgow, Jim Cruth and Catherine Sarby, went over to Lahore and then they brought back what was meant to be four poets but one didn't get a visa from Pakistan which turned out to be three poets. Um, to Glasgow and four of us, Jerry Cambridge and myself, were brought on board and we worked with the Pakistani poets um, to create versions of their work and vice versa. Um, there were bridge translations but the poets spoke good enough English for us to, to have a really good chat about each poem, what, how they wrote it, what, what Lang what nuances were in the language, um, what register it was in, what form it took. Um, and that was a really interesting project to be part of. And then a culmination of that, we went to Lahore in February this year just for a long weekend. Um, and it was amazing in a kind of fugue of jet lag and just to arrive there. It was fantastic. And we read... Uh, a, a book was brought out by a, a publisher from Lahore called A Change in the Light, which has both the Urdu poems and, and our poems in there. Is it available in the United Kingdom? Not yet? I think so. Somewhere. <laughs> I think it is somewhere. <laughs> I'll look up the details. <laughs> when you were there in Lahore, you got a very enthusiastic response, didn't you? You had people asking to have selfies taken and uh, not, not like a, our prim and proper... Scottish literary festivals. <laughs> that was, I mean, it it was, but it wasn't just for being poets. I mean, just walking around Lahore, I think there isn't much tourism now, um, which is a shame because it's such a beautiful city. It's a very cultural city. It's known for for its arts and culture, and I suppose they don't they don't see many tourists. So when we're out at the old mosque, um, looking around, people were just excited to. To see visitors there, I think mm. um, it was a great experience. Got any poems out of it yet? <laughs> I'm trying. It's it's tricky. I'm trying to write one. So, what poems did you have translated um, for the project? Um, I have extremely large telescope on being observed, a long-held view, and what do the horses think? I mean, I think with. 
hindsight, I may have chosen other poems. Through, through the discussion with the poets, what they find strange was very specific references. One of the poets said they wouldn't ever name something or use such a specific detail to pin something down, whereas I think we use that a lot to to give colour and detail. And, and Do you mean like a popular cultural reference? Even just something like naming a dashant, for example, in, yes. the, in, in on being observed, um, a specific dog or a type of dog, um, using the name of a shop or a... I've done that, but you know the specificity of of things. They don't tend. They tend to. She was telling me what around themes that are always used in poetry. Right. Um, I see. So, so I think, and in in a long held view, there's a lot of specific references that are, I suppose, when I look back on it, very specific to our culture. I mean that it's meant to represent people's lives so actually I, I maybe would have chosen other poems if I was if I was doing it again. So you've, you've done a bit of travelling before, um, earlier in your life you've been to I believe Greece, Norway, Romania, is it good to live for periods outside uh, the UK, is it good for your writing? I mean I don't know if you're writing at the time but maybe looking back it gives you something that you in your armoury that you wouldn't have had otherwise. It definitely does. I wish I was writing at the time. I wasn't. Um, but what it gives you, I think, is a, a distance from where you're from, a distance from yourself in a way, because you're looking at how other people see you. Learning other languages. I mean, I was never fluent in Norwegian or Greek, but I could converse in it at the time. I have a terrible memory, so I've <laughs> mostly forgotten it. But learning other languages is great. Um because you're exploring language, sometimes I learnt through children's books and things, because that was the easiest way to learn. And also I taught English in Romania and in Greece. So, again, it's about language and how others see it. And So I think all that has been very, very useful. And is there, you know, when you come to write a poem that's really heavily based on the place that you've been, like your poem about Little Sparta, do you feel a sort of vibrational tingle? Do you know, your, does your antenna start to shake and you go, ah, there's a poem in this, or is it much more diffuse than that? I think it's it's hard because you go to somewhere like Little Sparta or Sutherland, where I go a lot. I get really inspired and I want to write, but it's so, it's so hard because, I mean, I love being out in the hills and things, but nature poetry has been done so well previously. Sometimes you think, why, why bother? It's a real challenge, isn't it? It is. To make it new, um, and of course Sutherland and Norman McCaig, you know, it's very difficult to then write after that, I think. Yeah. But sometimes you just got to, and, and there'll be lots I've written that didn't get anywhere. But <laughs> <laughs> They're in a drawer currently. Yeah. But I mean, I suppose poets have manners, don't they? Like gangsters in London have their manners, you know, like uh, McKay owns a sin or um, yeah. Yeah. Wordsworth has a Lake District. Um, so it's quite hard for a, a poet now after hundreds of years of other poets to, to find their own sort of manner. You've got Tornest Nuclear Power Station, so... That's... Do you feel I've got that? <laughs> Is that well, mine? Well, you put your flag on that with your poem about Tornest. But maybe... Um, Maybe you could read the Little Sparta poem. I should, we should say, before you read it, if you don't know what Little Sparta is, it's a kind of sort of rural 
Wonderland that's created by the poet and artist um, Ian Hamilton Finlay. What would you say is kind of like a sort of living sculpture, isn't it? It's, it's kind of hard to describe unless you've seen some photographs. Uh -huh, it's a beautiful place. I mean, you come across... It's designed... The garden was designed by him, as were the the poetry that's installed in there. Mm. Concrete poetry, essentially. Literally. Concrete, Literally. Concrete a poetry. A lot of it. Um, aphorisms carved into wood or stone or... It's interesting the way they juxtapose. They'll have just a couple of words on a wall, mm -hmm. but when you see that with a view, there's like there's a sort of sequence of walls which have things like um, little field, big horizon. I'm I'm paraphrasing like crazy, but when you're standing there looking out on that, you really get the feel of it. You have to be a, a photograph will give you a sense, but you have to actually be there to to, to feel it. Don't it's actual you? actual words in the landscape, which just changes them, and you could stand for a good hour just contemplating them. Well, you stood there, you contemplated, and this is your poem, Little Sparta. Little Sparta. I glimpse you between gaps in the trees, flammable, blue, longing to be lit. We walk the garden separately, meet up at its ponds, stare into their travelled faces, hold hands in the woods. I trip over words that riddle the paths. They guide us round, past Apollo's golden head, we pay homage, then are led politely back to the gate. The distant hills are fixtures like old ants. Summer has flitted, autumn rummages in the abandoned wealth. Before long it will all be spent, and we'll be rattling like winter shadows, warming our hands on a bonfire of things not set in stone. And that draws another SPL podcast to a close. Now, you know, and I know, we're going to start this section with the thank yous. So thank you, Vicky Husband, for coming in and talking about her debut collection, This Far Back, Everything Shimmers, which, as I say, is published by Vagabond Voices. Thank you to Will Campbell, who wrote and performed the podcast theme tune. And thank you to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Without you, we're nothing. Uh, we have various methods that you can keep in touch with the SPL in between podcasts. We, of course, have our website, which we update regularly. We have a new poem of the moment every Monday. There's usually a new blog every Thursday. All kinds of interesting things. And that can be found at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. We have a Twitter account. That's at My Leaves We Live. We have a Facebook page. We do Instagram. We do all the things you're supposed to do these days in our socially mediaized age. So um, just enough time now to say that it's uh, the end of the podcast and in time-honoured fashion, here's one last poem by Vicky Husband. Jean's Theory of Everything. She asks them to leave the door open and from her bed calls the garden in. A brash wind is the first guest, bringing a party of others. Soil, leaves that frill the skirting, smells and rubbish make themselves at home. The roof gives up, lets the rain join in, and through frail panes the sun sits a while, empty-handed. Slugs traipse all night across her floor. She thinks they're fat, and what a waste of time making a marathon trip only to be burst by the beaks of birds, to slouch to sticky puddles. Seeds scatter themselves like poor punctuation, taking root in the rug. Soon green shoots poke through and worms doing morning yoga. By winter, the lens of her eye has a coating of ice, giving her a convex gaze. Now she can see the microcosm of things, parasites living on the hairs of mice, and the architecture of skin. Nature is a grafter, she grants it that. 
its work cut out, just keeping tabs on all those leptons and quarks. She feels much better when gravity lifts. Like a hospital blanket, it was too heavy and not very warm. On discovering she is curled around other dimensions, her vertigo disappears, and it explains that recent trouble with word search. She's also comforted to learn her tinnitus was actually cosmic microwave background. Jean networks with Dark Matter and finds him to be a nice chap holding down a job. She has yet to meet Dark Energy, but no wonder. The expansion of the universe is a thankless task. She can empathise with this, as she moved house many times before her fifth child was born. Then Jim had the op and the extension was built. Now she's on the nomenclature committee, as the physicists lacked an adult approach. She feels like the queen every time a quantum discovery sails off with the title she gives it. Inspirations include martial arts and founding members of the WI. She considers her other poor selves working in dead-end jobs in alternate universes. At night she could watch the nebulae for hours. She prefers them to soaps and feigns shock as they sow their stellar seed into space, as if it never happened in her day. Constellations flick past like an album of old photographs. She reminisces about light when it was young. It is around this time Jean conceives her theory of everything. Thank you for downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.